Welcome to Scenario D. The podcast that takes you behind the magic by giving you the facts and a whole lot of facts. I'm Lish. And I'm Curbs. And this week, we're seeing spots as we count not one, not two, not 15, but 101 Dalmatians in one of Disney's most beloved animal features. So go find yourself a couple of dogs. And keep your ears open for the twilight bark. As we try to get Curbs on board for the film that kicked off Disney's infamous Xerox era. Okay, Curbs, we're here to talk about 101 Dalmatians, and I gotta say, when we did our rankings episode a few weeks ago, the most shocking thing to me was how much you hated this movie. Like, I had no idea. I was not expecting it to be... Was it, like, your bottom bottom? Like, this is, like, the lowest movie? I feel like it was. Listen, okay, so I went into this rewatch really hoping that I'd be wrong, and honestly, the first... 30 minutes, I was pleasantly surprised. I was sitting there thinking, I actually kind of love Pongo. I love Roger. Mm-hmm. I'm like obsessed with Roger. He's awesome. I, Roger's the best. And I realized that he reminds me of my friend Graham, which I think is also why I like his character. Cause I'm like that mm-hmm. hair, the hair mm-hmm. gets me every time, mm-hmm. like a big thick head of blonde hair. It's a gift, right? It's mm-hmm. a gift from God. He gave with both hands to Roger, the animated man. And there was so much good stuff going on. And then I just lost all interest. I don't know what it is. As soon as the puppies are kidnapped, I do not care. I don't care if Corilla makes the coat out of them. I don't care Whoa. if they survive. I don't. Whoa. I truly don't. Whoa. And Whoa. this is a very unpopular opinion. And I am prepared for everyone to be like, how dare you? I don't mm-hmm. like Cruella that much. I, she's fine. Ooh. She's fine. I, I find nice. that I, I find that she's not that interesting to me in this format Mm -hmm. i want to be very clear that cruella as a character overall what the point of her was how they designed her love all of that here for all of that it does not translate for me she feels almost too much like someone you'd find on an episode of criminal minds who's just like mentally ill like it just it doesn't translate for me as feeling quite as sinister as some of the other ones um Mm. yeah I, i don't know why that is i really wanted to fall in love with her because i love the emma stone corella movie i had to i had to watch that twice though too see i really have a prejudice against 101 dalmatians as a franchise which is surprising because when I was small, I loved Dalmatians. I had a poster that said individuality and it was <laughs> Dalmatians, but one of them had colored spots instead Ooh. of black and white. And I also had a stuffed Lucky the puppy and I loved him. Like I, I think he's still in my parents' attic. So I don't know what what it is about this film that I get so bored. I went and cleaned the kitchen. I packed my lunch to go to work the next oh, day. I folded laundry. Like, I was not paying attention to this movie. I just, I, I, I did not I gotta say, like, I think of the movies that we've done so far, it's definitely one of the more engaging ones for me. You think so? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, the visuals in it, I think, are really, okay. really strong and very unique. I agree with that. The, yeah. I forgot how much dimension is in mm-hmm. some of these shots. Like, all of this, all of the scenes in their home 
love, Mm -hmm. love, love, love. I love the shot of them getting married in the church where it fades then, like, not fades. I don't know the film terms, okay? Where it pulls back and you see Pongo Mm -hmm. and Perdita also standing, like, with Mm -hmm. Roger and Anita in the background. Some really stunning color choices, Mm -hmm. some really great background work in this one for me. I think that the, I don't know, you're going to talk about this a lot, but even though this is the beginning of the Xerox era, I think it's very strong. Like, I think that there's so much incredible... Ken Anderson, God love you, work happening here. Mm -hmm. It just does not captivate me the way that it seems to captivate everybody else. And maybe it's the contrarian in me who decided without telling the rest of my brain or my feelings that like, we're not going to like this because everyone else does. But I just can't like to me, Lady and the Tramp, Hunter One Dalmatians, same level of boring after these rewatches. I just, I'm not interested Mm. in these dogs. Interesting. Not interesting. I could not like disagree more. I just enjoyed it even more than I remembered watching really? it this time. I think Cruella is a great villain. I just find her super funny, super entertaining. It definitely feels like more of a fun movie to me than mm-hmm. like the stakes are high type of movie. So yeah. I can see where you're coming from there. I feel like it's kind of what you would say about Robin Hood, where it's like you found. You found it funny, you found it entertaining, you were really engaged with the characters where it's like I didn't have that connection at all, but I definitely do with this movie. And it's just like, like we said, the art direction is so, so strong and that kind of makes up for any story missteps in my opinion. It does some heavy lifting. And I mean, I feel I must preface as well the same way that you have for films like Robin Hood. I didn't grow up with this movie. Mm. I watched it for the first time probably when I was in university or high school. Like oh, I, really? Okay. I have no yeah. nostalgic tie to this mm-hmm. movie, which means that Cruella as a villain, I also have no nostalgic mm. tie to this. I don't remember being okay. scared of her. I don't remember, like, you know, hiding behind a blanket for it. Like, other, other villains that happened with me, mm-hmm. like Stromboli is a great example, or even Radigan, which we, I can't wait to talk about Radigan. Wow, give me, like, <laughs> three more episodes, and we're going to be in Curb's territory yeah. big time. Yeah. But, yeah, I think, I think that does play a big factor here, but also allows me to objectively appreciate some of the, like, behind-the-scenes making of stuff that mm-hmm. I know you're going to talk about, and, like, care more about it as a film object or as like our friend Daniel from Ink and Paint Pod, like these, these cultural artifacts. I think I care more about that with this film Mm -hmm. than I do about something like Robin Hood because I'm not distracted by my feelings about it. It's much more, give me the facts, give me the facts and a whole lot of feels or reverse that, give me few feels and a whole lot of facts. Yeah, so. exactly. You know, we can't do it all, all the time. So here we are. Here we are. Curbs getting into the facts. I love to hear it. Except when I try to get into the facts, I'm usually wrong and then have to apologize. <laughs> it's okay. We've got a section at the end for that. We got you covered. All good. There's no villains on horses in this one, so I'm not yeah. going to step in that <laughs> So Disney at the time for this movie, it's a very, very interesting time for Disney Animation Studios. This is the movie that came out right after Sleeping Beauty. So if you have not listened to our Sleeping Beauty episode, I would definitely oh, recommend checking that mm-hmm. out because that was definitely a studio game changer and we kind of had to go in a different direction after that one. Just to sum up 
Sleeping Beauty came out in 1959. It cost over six million and took over a decade to make. That's very expensive for that time. And it only made around five million back in its initial box office run. So pretty big hit overall to the studio. Disney, the company in general, is making more live action films at this point. They're really involved in TV, doing stuff for that. And that's the kind of stuff that's just cheaper to make. And it's actually giving more revenue overall for the company than these animation feature films are at this right. point. Disneyland is also open. So mm-hmm. that's taking a lot of Walt's time and attention. Right. And so they're kind of reached the point where they need to find solutions for making animation faster, cheaper, or it needs to be shut down. Financial advisors at this point are telling Walt that it's just too time consuming, too expensive. Nobody cares. People aren't going to see it in theaters. Uh, So it's like kind of potentially hinting towards the end of that era. Walt had to fight very hard to kind of keep things moving, keep it alive. Mm -hmm. And they had to come up with some creative solutions for making these in a faster and cheaper way. And this, of course, was not the first time that Disney, as both the man and the company, had to kind of really critically look in the mirror and be like, can we do this anymore? (laughs) I know! Which I wonder, though, if that made Walt even more, quite honestly, stubborn. Because Mm -hmm. he's like, we've succeeded Mm -hmm. in the face of this kind of like adversity in the past. Like, we're fine. But this still just... It's things like this that still keep chipping away at that kind of like Walt mm-hmm. was perfect. No, he wasn't. He would no. have been so difficult to work with at this time. Which he was we're gonna tenacious. Hear more <laughs> he, you know, he really persevered. But yeah, there was definitely a lot of difficulties with working with him. And I, I know, I feel like every other episode, we're like, well, if this one didn't succeed, the company <laughs> was shutting down. And it's just like, they ha- they yeah. have like a Cinderella, and then they have a few things after that don't do as good. And mm. it's just like this roller coaster of like, can we keep making these movies? The fact that yep. it's lasted 100 years now is kind of amazing. Honestly, but, no know. one but Walt thought it would happen. Yeah, so. exactly, exactly. You got it, like you said, got to admire the tenacity. Yeah, really for do. sure, for mm-hmm. sure. And the reason that it made it past the Sleeping Beauty era is one key factor, which is the uh, invention and utilization of Xerox for animation. So... If you want to hear more about the background of the Xerox, I believe that's in our Sword in the Stone episode, so you can Mm -hmm. kind of check that out there. The quick version is basically instead of hand painting all of the like outside lines for all the characters and props and all that, they did that through a Xerox machine. So the like what's called the ink and paint process is basically taking care of that ink process. And then all of the painters have to do is paint within the lines that are created. So it's like removing a whole huge step. And a great way for those of you who are not film inclined, like me, uh, to understand the difference would be to picture Captain Hook in front of a background in Peter Pan and then picture Cruella in Mm -hmm. 101 Dalmatians and how starkly she stands out against the Mm -hmm. background because she has 
dark lines around her. Yeah. That is a really good visual cue for you visual learners in an yeah. auditory medium. <laughs> for sure. And like that's like one of the key things that's like a little bit limiting that we'll get into later is that it's like the lines in the case of something like 101 Dalmatians have to be black. If you look at Sleeping Beauty as a character, mm. the lines like around her hair, for example, they're just like a different color of like the blonde that her hair yes. is. And it's like the lines around her lips are like a different color of pink. So instead of, yeah. yeah, instead of having black firm lines around everything. So like the fact that just making it black makes it a lot easier. And why it's partially why a movie like 101 Dalmatians where basically all the characters are fully black and white. Black and white. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier. They first tested this technology, it actually was in some scenes in Sleeping Beauty, mainly used for things like the Philip fight against Maleficent with some of like the thorns and like all of that background there. Uh, and then it was used on a short called Goliath 2. So that was the first like, okay, let's just do something fully Xerox, see if this works, see if this still kind of looks okay. That went smoothly through the new production pipeline, and then they decided to use this technology on a feature project. Mm. So that brings us to 101 Dalmatians. Surprise, surprise. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Here we are. The idea came from a popular novel by Dottie Smith, published in 1956. Walt bought the rights pretty soon after its release, and then it pretty much immediately went into development. Walt tasked... Bill Pete, who I think we've already talked about this season, Our guy. with mm -hmm. working on the storyboards. Bill was actually not super excited by this project. He felt like the book wasn't very interesting, and this the characters were pretty bland. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. literally. You and Me Bill, and Bill same wavelength, <laughs> same page. The biggest change that he made is he felt like he's going to write the story from the dog's perspective, mm -hmm. and felt like that could add a lot and he also changed quite a bit about like how the initial characters meet the book starts right. and they're already married and just adding a little bit of like spice to some of those story points in there the fact that this story that we saw in that in mm -hmm. the film is the spicier version it's the spicy version yeah i can't i can't, don't read the I, book i can't curse. It's actually on the list because I do perversely enjoy reading the source material for a lot of mm -hmm. these Disney films. Just just to see, like, I'm a sucker for, like, a good story, but also a sucker for seeing how stories have changed from, like, mm -hmm. the page to screen. Like, when I yeah. read Mary Poppins, I was like, wow, she's the worst character in the history of the world. I was right not to like this. Yeah. But this is one that I've been putting off because of this. The fact yeah. that the spiced up version is, in my opinion, still not that interesting. Like, yeah. Bill did the best he could, you know? And for other people, that's enough, but... You're not going to like no. it. But it is interesting no. to see, like, what what exactly, like, when Walt read this, like, what was it that grabbed him? And that's what Bill said he was kind of trying to envision. Like, what right. is it that, like, he obviously really likes something. It's not like they were making tons and tons of animated movies mm -hmm. and, like, you really got to make them count. So it's like, why pick this story an interesting thing well i thought it was interesting bill was actually asked to write a detailed screenplay before boarding which he hadn't really done before that wasn't common practice for mm. um animated features but he didn't know how to use a typewriter so he actually had to oh. like hand write i don't know i'm picturing him with like a little ink jar and like hand scrolling See, and I'm, yeah. I'm picturing him with like one of those fat red crowns like yeah. pencils from first grade like <laughs> Tongue out the side yeah. of his mouth. Painstakingly mm -hmm. making like all the letters. Better. 
Sweet Bill. I like that better. He did end up writing it, but he wrote it by hand. And he did uh-huh. the entire storyboard on his own, which actually doesn't happen very often. Like, usually there will be, you know, a collaborative team, like, you know, at least five-ish people putting the story yeah. together. But he did it fully on his own rather quickly. Things kind of went smooth. And... Dottie Smith actually wrote to Bill Pete after it came out saying that he had improved on her book. So she was happy. Love love that. Uh, It was nice that like she, the rights were purchased and kind of quickly after she was able to see a finished product. Usually it's like the rights are purchased. It's in development hell for like 20 years. Then they finally make the movie. Maybe the author is still alive. Maybe they're not. So nice yeah. that she actually got to see the whole thing through also though again when the author's saying that the changes yeah. <laughs> were that were made are better oh this is that's better never a good yeah. sign because this mm-hmm. happens with happens as if as mm-hmm. if chuck palahniuk is continuously writing fight club but that's one thing about david fincher's film adaptation of fight club like david fincher's like oh my book is garbage like compared to the movie and it sounds right. like Dottie, Dodie, yeah. however you pronounce her name, is also like, sweet Bill. This handwritten masterpiece is taking my pile of garbage and making it so much more exciting. Yeah. Thank I you. I can't believe this. Thank you everyone is out. Everyone is agreeing yeah. with me. I just want to be clear that everyone who's worked on this film so far that we've talked about more or less agreed with me, except for Walt so far. So... I mean, I think that Bill came around. I think he was happy with what he put together. He just found the original source material a little bit... A little dry. A little dry, yes. Let's talk about Ken. I know you mentioned him in the beginning. Ken Anderson was the art director on this film. We've talked about him in some of these other, um, like, 60s, 70s movies that he was a Mm -hmm. part of. He was actually the one who pushed for this to be the first feature through the Xerox process. And he felt Mm. like there were a lot of elements to the story that would lend itself well to how that process was going to go. Yeah. We talked about the fact that most of the characters are black and white, so oh that helps. That's a leg mm-hmm. up. It is yeah. moving away from the fairy tale narrative to more contemporary story. So True. that gives an opportunity to kind of create a different look overall mm-hmm. that Disney audiences might not be so much used to. So it's kind yeah. of an opportunity there. The spots on the dogs would have been nearly impossible oh. to hand ink. So. Man. What it's a mess. Something, yeah, wouldn't have really been doable, but the Xerox mm-hmm. machine made it a bit more of an efficient process. The spots were still a huge struggle for the ink and paint team. Every single puppy and the two main dogs had a distinctive spot pattern, and over six million spots appeared in the film. So it's definitely a lot, a lot to keep straight for sure. The heavy stylistic Xerox lines served the vibrant color styling of the film. Walt Paragoy, which was another guy who had kind of been around Disney for a bit, Ken asked him to be the color stylist of the film, and he also saw the switch to Xerox as an opportunity to be a bit bolder with the color styling and shift a bit away from the conventional approaches, which they definitely did in this film. In the beginning, you can see... Like everything is like off the bat, it's super stylistic and it, it changes mm-hmm. drastically from like how the mood of the story is going. And yeah. I really, really like that about this movie. Like the beginning, everything's so pretty and green and full of life. And then there's Lush. like other yeah. scenes that are just like gray or like magenta or like splashes of this and that. And I feel like that's done really, really well in this movie. I agree. Yeah. yeah. 
They were also able to do a more graphic approach with the background. So typically you would draw out the layout and the background would be painted directly over it. So in this film, they made sort of two copies of the layout. So you draw it out like normal, they paint the backgrounds, but then they also put the layouts through the Xerox machine and overlaid that on top. So that's when, that's how you get all the lines and stuff in the background, really defining that more than mm. you would see on something like Lady and the Tramp or CBB. Gotcha. Okay. So okay. that's where that like sort of graphic, almost like comic style look is coming from. Which again, makes sense with what you said earlier about this being a more contemporary story. Like there's mm-hmm. just more opportunity there to make this look more like a comic book or more totally. like these other forms yeah. of media and mm-hmm. entertainment that are yeah. becoming more accessible and more popular in that yeah. time. Cause periodicals and comics are really coming into their own in the sixties in mm-hmm. particular. That's really For where sure. we start to see a boom of yeah. making that accessible. So that makes perfect sense. You know, our boys, Walt, not Walt D, Walt P. <laughs> Walt and P. And Anderson. I just, yeah. how much, how much you want to bet that it bothered Walt Disney that there was another man walking around with the name Walt? I bet you that he insisted that his, that he called himself something else. Like, I just, I, I was I, just going to say, I bet he had to just go by like Paraguay or whatever his Paraguay. name was or something like Paraguay. Um, yeah, Paraguay. <laughs> or like Wally. Do you know what I mean? Like, Wally. Just change your name entirely. Change you know, your, your name, name is now Wanda and you'll be yeah. happy about it. Okay. Because you still have a job here. Wanda. Real quick, I don't want to get too much into the animation of this one, but Mark Davis did Cruella, and I've mm. got to give him a shout-out because... Of course. It's just... I I just think it's so good. It's such a unique, interesting character. Like, the way she's, like, so skinny with, like, the oversized fur coat, the hair, mm. just, like, everything that came together for her. I know you yeah. were hating on her a couple minutes ago, yeah. but, I mean, you got to give at least... She's got style. You can't... Listen. Listen, can't take that away from her. I was saying that I don't think she's as good a villain in the context of this animated film mm-hmm. as she could be. Mm-hmm. I think that Cruella is by far the standout part of this movie. She is obviously a triumph, a crowning mm-hmm. achievement. Okay. She is a jewel in the crown that is Mark Davis's career. I just feel that she does not actually get enough stage time or screen time mm. for me personally to fall completely in love with her villainness. Like I, gotcha. that's why I liked Cruella. Cruella as a yeah. film, even though, you know, it's a different piece of the story. Mm-hmm. You get to see why she's the way she is. Like, because Cruella is this like over the top, super performative villain mm-hmm. that has a history with Anita. Like we know, why are they friends? Clearly, mm-hmm. Anita and Cruella have no business being friends. And to me, again, without the nostalgia, isn't Cruella her film, boss? Not no. In this, in the original film, no. okay, they're that friends was... from school. That's the oh, Glenn Close okay, version. Gotcha. That's, that's the Glenn Close version. Yeah, okay. yeah, okay. And to me, already that relationship now makes a lot more sense. But like, why is Anita's school chum Cruella? That's messed up. That makes no sense. And you're not and you. Not you, Alicia. And not you, <laughs> Alicia. Oh my goodness, I just called you Alicia. That was super weird. Don't tell everyone my real name. <laughs> Wipe it from me. Yeah. It's one of those things where we as an audience are not given enough context there for me to then buy into this. Like, I just have mm-hmm. questions that aren't being answered by her performativeness. But right. 
that being said, I think you take Cruella out of the film, and yes, she's amazing. She's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, she's... Like, there's nothing you, that you feel like Mark Davis should have done No! Better. Okay. No, okay. I feel... So, so like, not to, you know, try to ride your coattails here with this conversation about Cruella, but, like, it's worth spending some time with her because, as yeah. I said, I agree with you. She's the standout character in this movie. Like, mm-hmm. without her, there wouldn't be any sriracha in this entire white rice no. bowl of a movie. Like, <laughs> like, like I want to be very clear. I love Roger. I love Pongo. I even love Perdita. Like, I can get on board with, honestly, most mm-hmm. of the characters. Nanny, what a sweetie. Oh, like, love her. Gift. She's hilarious. They're just not enough without a foil. And Cruella is definitely that foil. She just, mm-hmm. the way they wrote her in and included her, it's just not enough for me. I don't see enough of her to buy into the way they used her in the story. She's too removed. I feel like her being Anita's boss makes a lot more sense. Then there's a power balance. There's, there's exactly. There. Yeah. And like you yeah. get the sense that there is like a power imbalance, but is it, but the fact that they're just friends, like Anita put up some boundaries, girl. Like, Well, and I think the power balance, like imbalance that we see in the original animated film is money, right? So mm-hmm. Cruella is dangling money in front of mm-hmm. Anita and Roger as like, you need this, you're struggling, you're poor, yeah. like, you know, I'll buy your puppies and can get you out of debt type thing. So that, that power struggle is there. It's just, again, it's not clear enough for my taste for me to really get behind yeah. Cruella. Like I just I just want more even context. if they were like related or something. That would have there needs to be like a reason why Anita can't just like tell this woman why to yeah, like peace like, out. Like why did you invite yeah. her to your home? Why yeah. is she just inviting herself over? That's insane. Why have you kept in touch with her? Maybe yeah. you know what? We're uncovering a problem here. Anita's the problem in this movie. Anita. Get Anita out of here. Put Anita on trial. She but just, no, like needs some boundaries and I think they didn't have those the way we do now in the 60s so I mean this is also an animated film and they needed this to happen this way (laughs) so and and like Dodie Smith wrote it this way right like this is this is them taking the source material and then translating it and this is another reason that I want to read the original book because maybe some of this would make more sense to me if I can see Cruella existing in a different you know more fleshed out world but regardless Mm. I do want to agree with you that this was Mark Davis's last character that he animated for mm-hmm. Disney. The rest of his career was spent working on Disneyland stuff. And he mm-hmm. considered Cruella as like, she's always moving. She's like a shark, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. She never really stops, which I love that insight. Again, more of these kind of like little bits and pieces about her make her more fascinating to me. And she became obviously the focal point of any scene she's in because she's so energized and she's so mm-hmm. skinny, like you said, but her voice actress was also just impeccable. Her name's Betty Lou Garrison. And we actually mm-hmm. first hear her voice in a Disney film because she's the serene narrator from the beginning of Cinderella. Like, how do you put those two voices together? Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, I didn't know that. Like, so calm, so peaceful. And her voice, the way that she was acting as Cruella, as well as a lot of satirical cartoons around the time this movie was being made is what really inspired her whole look. So there was this British satirical cartoonist named Ronald Searle, and he was really known for these angular, exaggerated depictions of people that also fed in to this Art Nouveau movement known as the poisonous mm-hmm. woman, which again, a phrase that makes perfect sense for Cruella, yeah, right? So, totally. And this kind of poisonous, spiny, shark-like persona that they created for Cruella or expanded on from the original novel 
really made her feel witchy, even though to your point, this is not a story with magic. This is not mm-hmm. anything to do with fantasy or fairy tales, but she's motivated to kill in the name of vanity, which is very much like Maleficent. It's very yeah. much like the evil queen. And I think that's why people often put these villainesses all together because yeah. they have similar motivations. And for sure, the flip side of that then is that how over the top and physical she is feels like the red queen from Alice in Wonderland from a decade earlier. So there's like a lot of interesting things mm. that they're kind of you yeah. know, more or less Xeroxing, honestly, in terms of character tropes. See what I did there? Yeah. yeah. No ice. But they're kind of, they're picking and choosing a lot of this stuff to put together to make Corella into this spoiled brat who always gets her way through and being intimidating and like all that type of thing. So by the end of the movie, of course, she's just out to lunch. Like she's completely insane. She's got the crazy spirally eyes. She's driving, you know, she just ends up in a ditch. Crazy woman driver. Yeah. Well, and that's a joke you could not get away with now. No. Can you nope. imagine? rude that is not appropriate. but at the time honestly if the boot fits and finally just to wrap up this diatribe on Cruella as a whole mm-hmm. I know some people could talk about her forever but we're only going to talk about her for approximately 10 more seconds the other thing that I do find compelling about her that again why I want to know more is because like a Gaston she's a villain you could find in real yes. life you can yes. find people that are purely motivated by their own selfish desires. You can find someone who intimidates the smaller, quote unquote, people in their life to get what they want. And you can find someone who's really not willing to get their hands dirty, but will concoct this diabolical scheme mm-hmm. and people who are then pushed to their breaking point. And yeah. then, you know, as you know, Elsa learned, dive down deep, but not too far, you'll be drowned. Oh, Corella was drowned a long time ago. She really just right Man. down into that out of Holland <laughs> hole, right? So, I mean, I just hope that people take from this impassioned conversation now about Cruella that it's not that I don't like her. It's that I feel there's more that I wanted from her in this film. And I don't think that they did her justice in the way Mm. that she was presented on screen. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. So now that we've covered a lot of impassioned conversation around Cruella, I would like to address a few other character development choices that they made in this movie that I do feel add a little bit more of that secret salt that Bill was trying to kind of squeeze out of the original story. Because you mentioned it earlier, I think the most compelling part about this whole movie is the fact that Pongo is the narrator. The fact Mm -hmm. that this movie is told from the perspective of a dog is what really captivated me. This is why I thought I would like this movie this time around, because that first 30 minutes of Pongo orchestrating that meet cute between Roger and Anita, describing Roger as his pet, just his Mm -hmm. perspective on everything, the fact that they're highlighting how smart dogs are, that they love routines, they love rhythms, but they love their people, the people love them. Like, I, I really thought that that was so well done and it makes this feel of course much more animally right off the bat like yes hunter one sure. dalmatians is by large one of the most animal films when we look at the ones that we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about because pongo is addressing the fact that like he's a dog the whole yeah. time you know yeah. they do this in the aristocats as well but there's something about the like uppity nature of the cats that kind of loses it for me, like the animalness. Like yeah. there's still much more of that anthropomorphic thing going on for but sure. In this movie, they really lean in to the lean fact that like, I'm a dog. Yeah. Well, yeah. They bless them. So you seem to like the parts more where it's like Pongo interacting with his pet or Roger more yes. so than when it's just like dogs gone wild. Correct. Yeah. And I okay. think, I mean, 
there's a correlation. Dogs gone wild, way less pongo. Like, I really think yeah. I'm a pongo stan. That's really what mm. I've learned about myself. He's pretty great. He is pretty great. Yeah. And I just, I feel that, like, he's super entertaining. He's really clever. Like, he has a lot of this great, like, these great characteristics going on. And what I also find most fascinating about this, told from a dog's point of view, piece mm-hmm. of this whole thing is that the voice actor for Pongo, his name was Rod Taylor, and he kind of made it big in Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. That's kind of one of his mm-hmm. big roles. He was the most well-known member of the cast at the time. And this, coupled with the fact that his voice is lower than Roger's and even that Perdita's is lower than Anita's, this reinforces the idea that the dogs actually have more power than the mm-hmm. humans in this story. Right. Like they're the ones moving things They're forward. running they're the, the show. Ones. Yeah. Yes. And it's... It's a subtle thing that until I read that, it didn't click with me. Like, I wasn't mm-hmm. sitting there going, wow, Pongo's voice is so much lower than Roger's. And it's but very, when you hear it's, it, and it's got this, like, kind of, like, dulcet tones to it where it's just, mm-hmm. it, I don't know, it, it brings you to 1960s London very quickly. There's yes. something, like, about it. And at that time, of course, is very modern now. It's yes. not. But yes. but yeah, I thought the like voice casting that they did for Pongo was brilliant and I didn't yep. yeah, I didn't put that together either. Right? And it it's one of it's one of those things that once you know it, you mm-hmm. hear it and you can pick up on that. But mm-hmm. yeah, I just I think that's brilliant. And it like further it further highlights then too for me that unlike Jim Deere and Darling, Roger and Anita have real personalities. Like the humans mm. are still characters in this movie. Unlike in Lady and the Tramp, where they're kind of faceless bimbos. Like, mm-hmm. like, like, Darling just hums the whole time yeah. through that movie. Like, at least Roger and Anita, they have conversations. They're, like, engaging with their pets. Like, it feels like a very symbiotic relationship, which is quite lovely to I think that their, their relationship and them as characters feels more real than oh, any of the other like Disney them. films before that I could really think of. You I know? know there's just like an actual like tangible like realness to them, how they interact with each other, the fact that they're flawed. Like it's just coming off of something like Sleeping Beauty, where it's just like Philip is Philip prancing through the forest. Yeah, yeah and, like there you go. And I think it, that's what it's one of the things that I find so interesting about the changes they made from the original book, because you mentioned earlier that originally they, they start the book married. Mm-hmm. I love that that idea of courting or dating is part yeah. of their story. We as an For audience sure. get to know them through that entire relationship, which to your mm-hmm. point makes this feel much more realistic. And it gave me very, very early vibes of like a Flynn and a Rapunzel, you know, yeah. that, that we get a lot later or yeah. even a Kristoff and an Anna, right? Mm-hmm. Where, flaws are on display we're getting to know both characters they seem quite equally weighted and i think more so of course in this movie because anita and roger are not the stars they're not who we're supposed to be focusing on there's no difference in screen time here because Mm -hmm. they're both they're not one without the other like you need them for this story to happen so i agree with you like i think that they are just a delightful little couple to watch and they're just so cute they're so cute oh my gosh now before we move on from the characters, because clearly I have more feelings about this dull movie than I thought I did. But yes. I would like to call out that Jasper and Horace creeped me out big time. Really? I was very uncomfortable with them. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't put my finger on what it was because, yes, they're kind of like the 
what is it, Harry and Marv from Home Alone. Like, clearly there's mm-hmm. some inspiration yeah. taken in that John Hughes yeah. film from these two. Um, but, like, they're breaking into a house, locking that nanny, sweet old lady, in a room. Like, if this I was feel like, like she could have handled that better. But uh, definitely, but they're still taking advantage of like a vulnerable person. Like I was very, and I mean, I, my family home was broken into when I was a kid. So I am much more Mm -hmm. sensitive, I think to like, not that I'm like triggered or anything like that, Mm -hmm. but I remember that panic of when we realized like our home was broken into and like someone was in here that didn't belong and took things of ours and there's nothing we can do about it. Like that's a scary concept to me. That's scarier than the idea of Cruella killing the puppies because like people don't do that like okay i know someone's gonna say yeah they do that's why PETA exists i yes someone has done this mm-hmm. and that person is the worst person alive but most more often than not you're going to have people that are breaking into houses and like that that idea of being confronted by someone breaking into your home like you saying no don't enter and them coming in anyway like that freaks me out i don't like that and also that's fair like yeah. Jasper, just kind of like a, a scary little skinny beanpole. Like, he's so unattractive. <laughs> like, that face is so long. It looks like yeah. taffy. Like, I just, I, I think that they did a really good job of making those two just as creepy in their own mm-hmm. right as Cruella. Like, it makes sense yeah. that those two would agree to murdering puppies. So, want to just go back to Xerox real, real quick. They took full advantage of the various capabilities on this film, not only for characters and sets, but they actually got very creative with the vehicles as well. So, this was a real standout for me when I was going through the research and things they did for making of this movie that I thought was just extremely creative. Mm -hmm. So, for Corella's iconic car, which is like basically the Batmobile, the way that it just trudged through the snow, it's like... (laughs) Damn, Corolla. Like, (laughs) as people who live in a winter climate Mm -hmm. half the year, we know that that ain't easy. So good for you, girl. So Up Iwerks actually had the idea to make a model out of cardboard and then add lines wherever you would see them in like a 2D kind of image so that it would translate over to 2D. Then they put the car along a long piece of cloth that had like little like wooden bumps Mm. underneath. And then they pulled the cloth and then filmed it. So it looked like the car was moving and then it would have a little bit of like, you know, life or like, you know, ricketiness to it. And then they transferred those film clips directly to a Xerox plate. And then all that needed to happen from there was that it needed to be painted. Hmm. So it was just a very... A creative way, I guess, to move things so much faster. Like you're skipping an animation step, a cleanup step, and just like all of this work and everything that would have originally gone into the car that now all it needs to do is go through the paint department. So that was pretty cool. When they do that shot of her like driving up the hill, they just put their little car model like through like a pile of sand. And then that's like exactly what pretty much was in the the final they just took the ingenuity the cleverness it's so smart and it's like basically like working with models before we had the technology to have computer models and stuff like that so that's so cool i don't know very inventive way to get things done on the cheap so well, done on the cheap, but also just, like, trying new things, which, I mean, yeah. I think we... Yeah, and it, it worked. Like, it looked really good, too. So yeah. Was, yeah. 
and we've alluded, we both alluded to this in different ways that it's like this whole movie is just trying new things. They're like, we're mm-hmm. running out of money. We have to be more creative. We have to find mm-hmm. ways to accomplish the same quality without, mm-hmm. you know, objectively the same yeah. quality without compromising on the type of story we want to tell or the visuals. And I mean, this is a really poor segue, but we're going to make it three, two, one. We jump into music because this movie is about jazz and that's experimental, right? Mm, sure. sure. I mean, honestly, the thing that they did differently with the music, if we're going to talk about like how they were changing, reinventing the wheel a little bit here, Mm -hmm. most other Disney movies up until this point had a soundtrack that included like songs. I mean, Mm -hmm. we talked about how in Bambi, there's way more songs than I originally thought there was. Even Lady and the Tramp, there's like five, you know, like we've animal, the animal season so far, we've talked a lot about how effective the soundtrack is. And this one really only has two and a half songs okay mm-hmm. so they had written a few other ones james and J- james oh my goodness jasper and horace were going to sing a song originally and the puppies were going to sing a song when they got freed they decided we don't need that i'm no. glad they didn't have that like the it no again it's like you've put a lot of effort into these characters being mm-hmm. a little bit more like realistic yes so it's yes. like to like the music i'm sure you'll get into this really only fits because he's a songwriter right but see that's that's, job that's what surprises me about it a little bit though like I think it Mm. I would have been intrigued to know if there was a treatment of this film that involved more cutbacks to like Roger and Anita while the puppies are away Mm. instead of them just once looking sad on like a rainy day or whatever it was like that could have potentially been an interesting device because one of the subplots in this movie is that Roger hasn't sold a song right like he's struggling right Mm -hmm. so and his big break comes when he writes this stupid song about Cruella and sells it. And another unpopular Cruella opinion, I hate this song. I hate Ooh. it. I yeah. have never liked it. Not one time. I don't It gets in the... my head, like, no. all the time. No. Like, always. I, yeah. It gets in mine, too, and I don't like it. I don't want it there. It's like, yeah. why can't... I would rather have the, like... I don't even know. Uh, Randy Newman singing one of those Ugh. Toy Story songs, which God. also, I mean, no. I like Toy Story. That's a poor example. I would rather have a Home on the Range song. I honestly think I would rather have a Yodeling Home even... on the Range song. Oh, God. Oh, there are songs. Oh, you just wait. You just I can't wait. wait. It's going to be um, good. You're lucky we're not putting that in this season. It is very much animals. It could have been in here. But we said absolutely not. No. Terrible <laughs> 2000s with you. Terrible 2000s. I did hear that there was, I guess, like another version or like an extended version or something to do with this song that Bill Pete actually nixed. Oh, really? Yeah. Like it was either. I'm trying to remember. I think it was like a a different longer version that happened at the end Mm. that he really didn't like. And then they ended up cutting it. Oh, Bill was I mean, like, no thank you. I mean, instead they did this Dalmatian Plantation weird little song, which yeah. I hated. I'm like, I've, like, no, no, that's yeah. not it for me. Roger, you ha- you will have one song in your career, you've already written it, and I also hate that. So I, yeah. it's not anyone's fault. That's a lie. It's George Bruins's fault because he's <laughs> for this movie. So like, it's his fault. Um, yeah. But I just, I don't like and maybe Bill's. Bill. Yeah. And it's really the only song. And then the other song that set my teeth on edge. I was in the oh. cleaning. The canine crunchies. <laughs> so bad. Song. Oh. 
I uh, wanted to scream. I, I, it went for so long. Like I felt like I was listening to this annoying voice. And then I found out that the voice actress singing it was, her name is Lucille Bliss. And guess who she is? Anastasia Tremaine, one of the ugly oh, stepsisters. And this makes, makes sense. perfect sense. Yeah. She's the one that played the flute. So we didn't get to hear how badly she sang. Yeah. Until now. That and it's bad. So it's bad. annoying. It's bad. That was like a, oh. probably one of the key like flashback moments when I was watching Ooh. the movie today when the canine crunchies and I was like oh like I am like this brought me back to like when I was like six watching this and even then being like what I hate am this. I watching right yeah. now <laughs> yeah and I mean the whole intention of including that was to allude to the like mock the, t- the commercials at the time like they yes they were poking fun at the time yeah. period where this film was made which you know is relevant because as we've already said a few times like it's set in a contemporary world so Mm -hmm. even us now 60 years later we still understand it you know Mm -hmm. but it uh, yeah it just it didn't work for me but the film came out and everyone loved it the disney team super happy with it audiences fell in love with it but guess what Mm. walt was mad walt was mad he was the original critic of this film he hated the xerox approach because he felt that it destroyed the illusion of life that animators like Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnson mm-hmm. and the rest of the Nine Old Men had really worked for and been delivering in the past. And he really felt that this compromised Disney's quality. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't want anything to show outlines. Like, he wanted everything yeah. perfectly blended. He didn't want the audience to be able to tell that an animator had drawn this. He wanted us to be completely transported into each of the worlds that the animators mm-hmm. were created and he felt that they lost some of that subtlety with all these thick lines. And as a result, he blamed Ken. He was like, Poor Ken, Ken. you really done goofed. And as a result, he said, Ken, no more directing for you. Absolutely not. Can't be trusted. Can't do that. Wooly Reitherman's going to do it. Uh, and am I correct? You don't like Wooly. You don't like him. Not a Wooly fan. No. Not a Wooly no, fan. Not a Wooly fan. Yeah, he's got fan. a great name, but we're not feeling it. And I feel like the ripple effect of this, because I feel like the, and we talked about this, the visuals in this movie are so strong. And think of what we could have had for like Sword in the Stone, Robin Hood, Jungle Book, like all these other movies that it's like are lacking in this area. Had Ken been praised and like Walt actually given him the credit that he deserved. And we kind of could have gone in that direction and had some new creative ideas. Well, and I mean, Ken was on some of those movies in a different capacity. He wasn't, like, completely removed. He was slapped on the wrist for, like, doing, you know, something new and creative. So it's like, go back to the status quo here, This was not a slap on the wrist. This was a kick in the butt. This was a (laughs) full-handed five, like, you know, what do they call it? Five star? Five star in the face. Like, every single finger visible. (sighs) And for years then, because this film came out in 61, right? So Mm -hmm. from 61... To 66, Ken thought that Walt, one of his friends, one of his mentors, one of his, like, Mm -hmm. colleagues, hated him. So sad. He was like, I felt nothing but animosity. Now, thankfully, this has a happy ending. Mm -hmm. On his deathbed, essentially, Walt was like, hey, Ken, you didn't do too bad. You know, you really didn't do too bad. And maybe, well, just maybe, we can move on. Do you think that Walt actually... Moving on meant he died. (laughs) 
Do you think Walt actually said it though? When I watched the video no. of Ken today, Ken was like, I saw a glisten in his eye that no, made me believe that it. he I, forgave I, me. And it was just like, oh, poor Ken. Like, oh, I, I feel think, so bad. I for think you. that this is conjecture. I think yeah. that people have decided that Walt forgave him because, mm-hmm. again, this comes back to what we've been talking about a lot over the past year is that everyone wants Walt to be a saint. And he yeah. wasn't. He was no. a shrewd businessman yeah. who knew what he was doing. And had a very particular vision. And if you got in the way of that, mm-hmm. you're done. You're like, done. He was, he was a, a pretty vain, egotistical, creative genius. And when that happens, you don't say you're sorry. Are you kidding me? Like, absolutely not. Yeah. I, I'm glad that Ken feels he got something. Because this was the last Poor successful Ken. movie before Disney died. And Ken was in charge. So I really feel it's more Walt going, wow, I really, like, took a dump in the bed here. I really should have let Ken make me more money before I died. Yeah, maybe. You know? Maybe. I don't know. How well did this movie do financially? Oh, it did so well. Yeah. So well. It made uh, quite a bit of money. It was the 10th highest grossing film of the year in the U.S. and Canada when it came out in 1961. It made $6.4 million in domestic rentals during its first year of release as well. And it was also very popular in France. I don't oh. know why my sources didn't mention how it did in the UK, but France? France loved it. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And Dodie Smith was also super happy with the final result. She's like, you done good, Bill. You done good. So, I mean, everybody who mattered was thrilled and people loved it so much that it was re-released four times. And in 1991, it made it to the 20th highest grossing film of the year in domestic earnings on a re-release, which wow. is pretty incredible yeah. for an animated film and for a re-release in particular. So that then came out on VHS in 1992. How exciting. But there were some weird technical issues with like transcribing it to DVD. So it didn't actually come out on DVD until almost the year 2000. It was like late 1999. They really couldn't get it together, which probably would have made it even more money. Because again, Mm -hmm. people love this movie for some reason. I don't really get it. It's so good, Curbs. Just get on board. Get on on the train. I, I just... The spelling of Dalmatian has always stressed me out. Even as a kid, oh, I was like, yeah. is it is it D-A-L-M-A-T-I-A-N or is it D-A-L-M-A-T-I-O-N? And it's guess all what? A's. It's all People A's. People at Disney didn't know. They released merchandise with it spelled with an <gasps> O and they had to pull it off the shelves. <laughs> Just a That's disaster. That's hilarious. I, yeah, they're like, whoop. We done goofed. Sorry. Oh, I wish I had snagged something that had an O on it. I know. We were millions now. Oh, and there were so many spinoffs and sequels. Like we've already alluded to the 1996 live action remake with Glenn Close. Which, so good. You know, I actually really enjoyed. That's it so had good. mixed critical reviews, but excellent box office results. Because mm-hmm. again, people can't get enough of the dogs. And then they had a very cleverly named sequel in uh, 2000, 102 Dalmatians. Whoa. And once again. It had a lot of criticism, but it made good money. Then they had an animated series called 101 Dalmatians, the series, which lasted for like 11 months. And then they did the very long-winded 2003's 101 Dalmatians 2 Patches London Adventure. Haven't seen it. Haven't seen it. Oh, don't watch it. Yeah. Don't do it. No, it's bad. It's awful. And then in 2021, of course, they had Cruella. So people are still really obsessed with this story, but I think the most... uh, uh, there is a problem. <laughs> every Herbs. single film, every single film you this season is going to have, have a problem. problem. Okay. Hit yes. Me. There's always going to be a problem, and this problem is called the Dalmatian syndrome. Have you okay. heard of this? Nope. Once I say it, you're going to be like, ah, yes, this makes sense, <laughs> or that this rings a bell. 
So obviously this movie came out and people were like, wow, Dalmatians are beautiful dogs. I would like a Dalmatian. And what happened is that the demand for this breed just surged. In 1985, there was a re-release of the film that pushed the number of registered Dalmatian puppies with the American Kennel Club from 8,170 to 42,816. Now, where do you think those 40,000 puppies came from? Probably not good places. Bad places. They came from puppy mills, backyard breeders, people who don't care for the animals, but are just looking to make Uh. quick money. And as a result of this as well, all these puppies being bred improperly, you're getting dogs now that are super aggressive, they're super stubborn, they're super anxious as a result of how they were bred. And then these dogs end up being displaced from homes because people are like, I want Rolly the puppy from the movie. I don't want a dog that's temperamental. And then you also get people taking these dogs in who aren't ready to be dog owners. Like they, they're not, they don't actually want a pet. Made an impulse decision. Yes. The same way that we still have, you know, every Christmas there are ads being like puppies are not presents. Like animals are not gifts. They are family members or animals Mm -hmm. are like things to be taken care of. They're like, they're creatures. Right. So it became such a problem, such a problem. That when 102 Dalmatians came out, so the second live action one, they actually included a statement that urged owners mm. to thoroughly research breeders before purchasing a Dalmatian puppy. Right. So mm-hmm. arguably, Disney should have done more than just put this as like an end credit scene. Um, right. And they should have probably just said, don't buy a dog just because you like our movie. Like, you yeah. know, but at least they were trying to educate people and they did actually go on to partner with the Dalmatian club of America who knew that existed. Um, they partnered with Mm. them to develop some educational campaigns based on pet ownership responsibility. So they did at least acknowledge that like this phenomenon that they created was a negative one in the world. of. I mean, can I just say that pretty much the whole time I was watching this movie today, I was thinking about getting a Dalmatian. So it might be part of the problem. Now, they they require a lot of walks. Like, they are super high-energy dogs. Mm-hmm. So that's another huge problem. I also require a lot of walks. So That's yeah. true, actually. You did message me right before we were going to record this to be like, I need 20 minutes outside. I got to stress the lights. I got it. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, yes, the Dalmatian syndrome, I had to pull it down just a little bit, but ultimately we can still end on a high note because it's clear that people really mm-hmm. love this movie. I think that for a film that's not a fairy tale, it still has a lot of that like boundless enthusiasm, a lot of that can-do spirit mm-hmm. embedded throughout the entire thing. It's really cool how they refer to evolving technologies and media from the time. Like you see phonographs, you see TV shows, you see interesting telephones. Pongo's looking at a fashion magazine. There's billboards, there's neon lights, Mm -hmm. a lot of game shows. Like there's a lot of really interesting cultural touch points in here, which we have not seen in a Disney film before that made it feel more real. for sure. And I think that it also does a really nice job of presenting communities as the most important part of a modern society because Pongo and Perdita could not have found their puppies without the help of that Twilight Bark, which we didn't even really get into talking about. But the Twilight Bark is not just dogs. So awesome. It has cats. It has a goose. It has a duck. It Mm -hmm. has a horse. Like, it has so many different types of creatures all working towards the same goal, which is honestly just a really lovely... I loved the cows cows. when they were like... They were so cute. Like, oh, we wish we could do more. Cute little puppies. And that's that's those types of human elements that they're giving to these animals Mm -hmm. as like something for them to own, not just an anthropomorphic quality, but it's like these animals are inherently like that, which is, again, 
Just yeah. a new way of presenting animals in an animated film or any other film, really, like live Very action true. or otherwise. Yeah. And those kind of studies and contrast, you know, it's loud, it's quiet, calm, hectic, country, city, black and white. It just, it, Hunter Mondale Dalmatians does have a lot of great stuff, even though I was so bored. <laughs> this conversation wasn't boring, but watching the movie, it was. Curbs, another day, another apology. And this week I would like to apologize to Dottie slash Dodie Smith because <laughs> I am not sure which way to pronounce her name. And I'm going to be honest, I still don't know. So this is this season's Joe Grant. Remember how yeah. in season one you were like, I don't know who this man is, but he keeps coming up. Not gonna look it up. And then for weeks. Yeah. <laughs> just nothing. Same thing, eh? Well, yeah, same poor, thing. Poor Dodie slash Dottie. Yeah. She really can't catch a break because my apology also has to do with her indirectly. Uh, I would like to apologize for saying that I've read this book. People may recall, listeners may remember that in the rankings episode, I said I read the book and found it boring. Spoiler. You did say that. Yeah, I was clearly lying to people. I've actually never read this book and I said that several times in this recording. <laughs> oh, curves. <laughs> So did you like know and you were lying in the rankings or what? Or you thought you had read it? I I uh, just, I thought I had read it, but I haven't. So uh, never read this book. It took this many episodes to come clean about it. And I'm sorry for lying to our very Hilarious. passionate, dedicated audience. I'm sure it kept them up at night to know that uh, I was lying in the, I guess 15 seconds actually. They, they are only finding out now that I'm saying this, that I was lying. You know who's going to notice is my dad. 100%. He's going to be like, Curb said she read that book because he's probably read it. So. And I'm going to say to that, Eric, sir, I'm so sorry. I apologize. <laughs> you. <laughs> That's hilarious. And of course, we have some of our incredible sources that we'd want to mention. I watched a fun YouTube video called Redefining the Line, the making of 101 Dalmatians. And one of my classic sources was the Walt Disney Archives by Daniel Cothenslute. Amazing. Can you guess who my number one resource was written by? I mean, is it going to be Paul? It's Paul, of course! Uh, Paul's yeah. review of 101 Dalmatians from the year 1961 for his blog, Feeling Animated, was, of course, an invaluable resource for me. But I also learned a lot from a woman named Cindy, no last name, for, can you believe this, Don Cherry's Pet Rescue Foundation. As in, like, the hockey guy. What? I know, it's okay. wild. I don't know. Don't ask me how I find these things in the corners of the internet, all right? I just do it. Seriously. Cindy wrote an article called The Dalmatian Syndrome, which was really helpful for me, as well as an article by someone named Olivia Rettigliano, which is a great name. Ooh. She wrote an article called Stopping for a Moment to Appreciate the Original 1961 Film, 101 Dalmatians for Crime Reads. So thank you, Cindy, Olivia, and Paul, as always, Paul, for your very, very detailed analysis. What would we do without Paul? Honestly, I would have no sources. So like- And Daniel, <laughs> we need them. Paul, Daniel, and let us not forget Christopher Finch as well. And Mindy. Yes. Mindy Johnson. Mindy, didn't Mindy Johnson always either, coming through. It's yeah. always good for a piece of info. Totally. And if you're looking for more shenanigans like these, make sure to subscribe to the Scenario D podcast, wherever you love to listen. And better yet, why not rate us? Because those stars, they go a long way. They really do. And I don't think we've- received enough ratings so if you've been listening to us for a while and like us which you should 
definitely rate us. Please, please, please. Rate us. Rate yes. us. We deserve it. We deserve gold stars for the work we we're putting in here. It. We do. We're also really excited to be bringing you all of the facts, feels, and chaos over on YouTube. So you can now support us by liking, subscribing, ringing the notification bell, and doing everything else you'd normally do for a channel you love. So go watch our latest episode using the link in this episode's description. And as always, don't forget to catch us on Instagram at Scenario D Podcast. You are going to love the magic we're making there. At first you think Cruella is a devil. But after time has worn away the shock, you come to realize you've seen her kind of eyes watching you from underneath a rock. <laughs>